What's up, guys? This is Kevin Estella with the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Um, I've got a good buddy on the podcast with me today. This is a guy who, you know, in the survival industry, you could say that we were kind of like in the same graduating class, which doesn't make any sense because we never attended the same <laughs> schools or anything like that. But, you know, when I look at the folks around me to my left and to my right, I think about who came up in the industry around the same time as I did. And, you know, I really took it more professionally uh, than just kind of woods bumming in the early 2000s. And back in the early 2000s, there was an event here in North Carolina. It was actually on the western part of the state in Marion, North Carolina called Practice What You Preach. And it was a gathering uh, put together by Terrell Hoffman, who's an industry photographer and an outdoorsman. And it was kind of like, if you talk about something online, here's your opportunity to come and show it. So all of us, you know, we're all big swinging dicks and this and that, you know, we're trying to show off what we know. And, and I just was introduced to, you know, two of my good buddies that I, that I call today, Joe Flowers and Ruben. And, uh, you, you know, it was just one of those cool opportunities to show like, Hey, look, we're legitimate. We know what we're doing. We can talk about it. We can demonstrate it. And over the years, you know, I've watched these two guys, uh, Joe's already been on the podcast, so we'll talk crap about him later. But, um, but Ruben's one of these guys who I've always watched and admired the work that he's done because he travels even more than I do. And I travel a hell of a lot. Um, and he also goes to more tropical locations. So while Joe Flowers kind of focused on doing the Amazon and I focused on doing the Northern Forest at the Wilderness Learning Center, uh, Ruben was working with Essie Knives doing the, the stuff down in the southeast as well as in Peru and all over the freaking place. But uh, these are guys that I consider uh, my peers. And I think you're going to really enjoy learning from Ruben because uh, he's a cool dude. And we've hung out plenty of times at Blade Show. And now we have a chance to kind of share some knowledge and chew the fat on the podcast. So, Ruben, good morning, sir. How are you, buddy? Good morning, Kevin. Man, what a great intro. Yeah, isn't, um, that, isn't that kind of like the way things are? You know, like it, it, you, you brought a lot of memories back with all that. You, you are correct, 100%. Um, uh, like you mentioned, Joe Flowers, right? Uh, I was trying to figure this out, and if you can shed some light on it, please do. When were we the most active on the forums? Because we there's a certain group of us that just kind of always were consistent with posting and mm -hmm. ended up writing for magazines and teaching and doing stuff. And you got this great book, but it it's like I think of you and Joe Flowers. I think of Joshua Swanigan, who is an editor for several publications. Mm -hmm. We worked on three magazines uh, together tim stetzer oh my god uh, yeah like a lot of guys that just they always kind of stood out from just the regular posting it was posting mistakes experiences places so i think from the start um it's kind of like a handful of us that started out took it to the next level and are still doing it today and uh you, you nailed it. <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny. You mentioned, you know, Tim Stetzer and I think of Stetzer as his handle on blade forums or knife forums or remember right. outdoor survival forum, uh, OSF. Oh, yeah. And course, then uh, yeah. what the hell, what the hell else was there? Um, so all the, many old Jimbo old. Okay. So I bring up old Jimbo's name all the time and, and people don't realize the wealth of information that dude had where he would take like a small Vaughn sounding hatchet and split an entire tree with it using uh what he could carve like the the uh splitting wedges wedges like, yeah batoning right that dude was legit and that website's gone you know like, yeah it, and it stayed on for a long time and you can always reference it but then one day i went there and it was all this information was gone it's like oh man yeah but I, but like i was saying uh 
Tim Stetzer, I think of as T Stets, you know, right. and, and, the, and the images that stand out in my head are like us on the range at Terrell Hoffman's place. And Stetzer had like that old tanker chest rig that he used to wear, um, for like an old revolver an old 38 revolver. And like, I think, yeah. I think about those guys like Luke and I think about all the, the earlier guys that, that kind of just came oh. up around the same time. You know, and it's it's funny because people will come up to you at the shows. You know, we we do these conventions, right? Like Shot Show and um, Blade, and uh, Blade Show, and they'll come up to you, or they'll come up to me, let's say, and they'll be like, "Hi, I'm Turtle Five Five Eight. I'm Ruben. <laughs> nice to meet you." But everybody would kind of identify with uh, their, uh, you know, what they're known on the forums because that was like, that was the thing. That was the way to. That was kind of like a cool Friday night. I don't know, maybe for nerds like me, just like getting on the forum and and posting stuff and talking stuff. And, you know, um, it was just a great meeting ground for, like you said, so many people that are still doing it today, doing it right. And and back in the day, you really had to be into it and really willing because you had to have like a photo bucket account or a Snapfish account to, <laughs> exactly. to link photos, right? As opposed it took a lot to, of work, right? Yeah, yeah like, like you really had to like want to yeah, you, put information right. out there. Um, yeah, and you know, that's a good point. It took a lot of work. I remember one of the more detailed reviews, posts I saw was on the cold steel roach belly that Joe Flowers did. Mm -hmm. And I just remember it like, this is like really good stuff here. This is like magazine type of stuff. And it wasn't too long after that, that he was writing for, um, not as illustrated. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Tactical knives was the magazine at the time. And, and we started, but I have to say that, um, I'm going to say those guys that were doing great reviews and posts and sharing information back then are still active today mm -hmm. and it's a small little group of us. And I still can't recall what year it was that I first joined or I first saw you on there. I want to make a strong case that it was 2003 <laughs> okay, or maybe yeah. 2005. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, my history with the forums, 1999, I'm working at Eastern mountain sports in Fairfield, Connecticut. Right. I still remember wow. it was store number 27 and this guy walks in and he's got, I don't know if it was 511 at the time or, or Royal Robbins, right? Like that was the company that 511 was before it was 511. So right. he's, he comes in with Royal Robbins pants on and he wants to see a knife in the knife counter. So I, I come over and I show him a knife and I was like, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty good knife, but you know, I like this one. And I start nerding out on knife steels and he goes, well, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a lot of like, you know, in this area, if you really enjoy it, you should jump on the forums. I'm a moderator. And it's, it was Brian Jones. Uh, oh, Brian. So, yeah. So, so Brian Jones is like, here, come on the forums. I'll introduce you. And that was 1999. Um, that's great, man. What a so, great story. Yeah. So, so I started there, but then, yeah, I want to say it was probably Oh three or Oh five that I right. started noticing your stuff and your handle was bear the dog. Um, yeah, it's, it still is. <laughs> is it really? I go on this one. It's my email. It, it's just, uh, my dog was named bear. Very simple. <laughs> yep. And, uh, we were talking offline before we jumped on the podcast that, you know, I started noticing your stuff because, you know, here's the online discussion boards and they're filled with a bunch of fat dudes, right? Like fat dudes or like gristled guys, you know, the type that you would All expect sorts, to right? hear. Yeah. You'd expect to hear banjo music playing, right? Like that's, <laughs> and then, exactly. you know, and then you try telling your parents like, Hey, I'm going to go in the woods and meet up with a bunch of these dudes. And they're like, Oh my God, what's, what's going on with my son. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you stood out because you would always have this, this girl in your photo in like a bikini. And every guy was like, and I don't think you ever showed her face out of like respect to her, but every, right, right. every dude on the forum was like, 
who's this bear guy? He's always got a hot chick with him. Like you were like the rock star just because you had a female on <laughs> there funny. when there were no females in that, that game. Right. Know? Yeah. Which is great. Um, that there are so many now. Um, but yeah, I used to post, uh, some photos with, um, you know, a lot of hikes. I did a lot of hiking and, and backpacking and it would be in Southern California most of the time and somehow a, a knife. And then like, you know, you have a, uh, a subject like a let's say a model it's like put them together hey you mm-hmm. know, why not <laughs> and uh those days those days were great because i was still in southern california and i had these high elevation mountains and the desert and um just all these you had such a, an amazing you had such a reservoir of different environments just being in california right i, I just jumped into california here but what was amazing was that first time I ever went down south to, when I say down south, I mean to Alabama to meet with uh, the Randall's Adventure and Training guys. That's one of the things people ask me about. Like, hey, you're the guy that's got like photos of, there's like a girl and there's like a knife on her hip or mm-hmm. something. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Machetes and stuff. But funny thing about going down south the first time was somebody asking me, somebody from there, maybe a student in the class, oh, California boy. You got any woods there? Do we have any woods in California? Was the question I was asked. <laughs> I did not answer because I, I, I didn't know if they were joking or not. They, they, they kind of were, but they just kind of, they maybe they were uninformed. But we have these huge mountains and uh, the highest hiking trail you can you can possibly hike, which is Mount Whitney mm-hmm. in California, um, not McKinley or Denali as they call it. I forget what they're calling it these days. That's a mountaineering mountain and. Uh, so we've got the highest mountains, uh, peaks are in the 14,000 range and desert. You, if you find yourself in Southern California, you go 45 minutes in any direction. You're, you're at the beach in the desert, high elevation mountains. So the amount of um, terrain you have at your disposal to learn from, even the Channel Islands just off the coast of um, California, that's like very prehistoric type of place we have so much to learn from in california that um i was super fortunate to do a lot of backpacking hiking and to finally go down south where it's it's very different as you know you've been all over the country mm-hmm. it's very different I, I didn't see any mountains like <laughs> i think the highest peak to have it might be three thousand feet somewhere in georgia and that was so weird to me to be on very flat straight terrain and to be around more hard woods and um just recalling my first time down south and how that is how people remembered you're the guy on the forum with the chick with the knife or something like that yeah before we talk about like ultralight because that's one of the things i think about when someone says oh do you know ruben i'm like yeah ruben's really good at packing light you're mentioning california and the mountains something that just came out in the news cycle was that that guy um what was his name? Julian, something, the British actor, he just was found in the mountains. Right. Uh, I did, I did, I did read that story. Um, and I'd been in that area. Yeah. He was in a lot of, a lot of cool movies. I always had a, a obscure part, uh, 
didn't realize how many movies he'd really been in. He's but, one of those method actors, you know, like he has that right. face that just kind of blends in everywhere, you know, like, oh, sure. Yeah. Like the dude some... that plays the Mandalorian, like that dude could be any nationality he wants or ethnicity. Right. Uh -huh. you know? Yeah. <laughs> he kind of blend in. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like that was, that was a case of uh, exposure, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, that what, what ended up being? Yeah. They, I don't think they released the cause of death, but I was on a uh, news uh, I'm sorry, not a news, a radio station talking about it. And I said, look, you know, at that altitude with a, the X temperature and X amount of wind, I'm like, that's what the perceived, you know, value is of, of the air. Like that's how cold it's going to be. And I said, chances yeah. are, if he's a peak bagger, there are a lot of these guys that just get on the trail and, you know, they run up and down and they're wearing sure. a pair of like silkies or, or running All shorts right, or yeah. whatever with a fanny pack. And it's like, get up, get down. No concept of Hey, if I get injured, I have to spend the night sure. here, you know, and who knows what, where he was. You're right. Yeah. I've seen that so many times. I, I was on all the backpacking forums for since two, 99 and 2000 on. I didn't get into the wilderness forums and the survival forums until like early 2000s on the forums, but I was always on the backpacking forums because I was more of a hiker, backpacker, long distance, high altitude type of stuff. And mm -hmm. um, you were right. You were right, man. I would see guys that like they're, I remember I was uh, attempting uh, the first time going up to Mount Gorgonio, and it's not a super, super high mountain. The elevation is a little over 11,000 feet. And we're training for another hike that was coming up. And a guy just runs past us with a pair of shorts, and he's just doing his morning run. I'm like, really? And we were just at about the 10,000-foot mark. And then he just went right back down the hill, which is great for like, wow, you're a specimen. But it only takes an ankle roll or mm -hmm. maybe something, you know, small that will keep you there for quite some time and not everybody around you, you know, has what they need on them to address your needs and uh sometimes people will will, will make the people around them uh into a situation that they didn't want to have to be in they get pulled into several mm -hmm. hikers i've known and seen over the years just don't have what they need on them in case of some emergency to help themselves or to help somebody else. And I felt like as a backpacker hiker, I was very gear dependent. Um, this is maybe around 20 years old. And just the idea of if this pack rolled down that hill right now, I'm pretty screwed. Mm -hmm. And I hated that feeling. I really did. And I just remember seeing Ron Hood's videos and advertisements, oh God, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know magazines and stuff on the Hoods Woods uh, Woods Master series, mm -hmm. and I thought that'd be great to like really get into some of this stuff and um, apply it to that knowledge to my backpacking as a little extra, you know, survival insurance in my head. And that was it. I kind of did more of that than backpacking after after that point. Just seeing people, uh, finding lost people. I've come across lost hikers. And they, it's amazing what, what they don't have on them. And it's not so much tangible gear. It's just knowledge is what they lack most of the time. Yeah. The other thing that they don't have is they don't have experience with the tools that they carry. You know, like I see plenty of people that come through classes and the first yeah. thing that we do in a class, you know, I usually say like, all right, guys, let's just do an, uh, a layout, an inventory. What did you guys bring? Let's do a walk around because we always learn from one another. Like maybe there's something cool that you have in your kit that just makes a lot yes. of sense. I've never seen exactly. before. Well, people will show up to courses and they'll show up with knives that are still in the package or they'll show up with a tourniquet that still has the wrap on it. It's never been staged. Sure. And I'm like, 
I'm like, have you ever used this before? Like it's, it's in the package, you know, is this the new one? Like maybe you have a, a beat up one at home and they're like, oh no, no, you said to get one. So I have one. I'm like, okay, but like, I, I appreciate you taking my advice, but let's, let's get this thing dirty. Let's, let's see if it works with like the size of your hand. Let's see if, you know, it, it works in this environment. And, you know, that's something that I think a lot of hikers do. A lot of hunters do it too, right? Like exactly. they, they put a button compass on their lapel and they're like, I can navigate. And it's like, dude, you can tell which way is north. Um, you don't know anything <laughs> right. really about navigation. Um, but that's, that's that ego thing, which maybe ego came into play with that guy in California that got lost and killed up in the, the mountains. Maybe he died because he got cocky. I don't know. Sure. Um, um, it happens. Now let's go back a few years. Do you remember a UFC fighter named Evan Tanner? Oh, hell yeah. That dude was a beast. He, he went was. to the, he went to the desert, right? Joshua tree. That's right. Well, it was, it was not quite Joshua tree. It was in that area of Southern California. Yeah. And, um, I know that area. It's a very harsh area, but, um, that's another case of like, here's a guy who's, who's super fit. He's, he has such an amazing story. If anybody has time to listen to it, or just Google him. You'll just see what he has done in his life to overcome things. Um, and you know, then he got to the point of being just such a, a well-known fighter, but uh, no one can question the fact that he was in shape and shape and condition are two different things. And he used an old map with that showed seasonal streams mm -hmm. and ponds. Now I spent the first 37 years, uh, in California and there, there is, it is a desert. People don't realize that there, you cannot rely on any seasonal pond, lake or stream. There are, I'm going to say there are just very few <laughs> in, in general and where he camped, he depended on it going to this watering hole. He found it empty didn't have enough water on him or i guess he didn't have enough fuel to get back to this camp and somewhere in between where the water should have been in his camp is where they ended up finding him and that was just wow it was like it was, I, I think i wrote an article about that you know, for survival quarterly magazine several years ago and it really kind of hit home because i it's it's an area i know and i just know how mm -hmm. terribly brutal water sources or the heat in California is and how you cannot rely on water sources. Yeah. You don't want to picture how he went either. You know what I mean? Like you, you know that the end result is him perishing because of, because of that. But imagine yeah. the six or eight hours before he died, what was he going through? You know, it's, it's, it's terrible to think about. It, it really is. Um, you know, they call dehydration, the, the stealthy killer, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, I believe it is along with hypothermia. Um, it, they you, they have a way of creeping up on you and, and you almost don't realize it or know it's happening. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of uh, search and rescue people and law enforcement over the years. And one thing I, I hear them saying or talking about, um, it's even in one of the PowerPoints that Patrick teaches for the SC9s classes, um, how people respond when they're going through heat related things like um, dehydration and one of the things you may have heard this too um that when they're looking for somebody and they start to see layers of clothing mm -hmm. they know that's bad because people often strip down and this is this i've i've read this i've heard this when it comes to dehydration and people dying of that what it does to your brain it just really tricks you and makes you uh want to take your clothes off and you you 
it, it's one of those signs where when they start to see that, they know they're doing more of a recovery than a, you know, rescuing anybody. That happened anybody. with that uh, that Asian guy. I think it was in Portland um, or Oregon. He was in, yeah, he was in Oregon. Uh, he's with the, the one snow in the family with the snow in the family where they were burning the tires. They found him naked. You know, right. and that's happened multiple times in cold. It's happened with dehydration. Right. Um, you know, you bring up, you know, Ron Hood and, and some of those guys like getting, you know, getting back to this idea of, of ultralight, the more, you know, the less you carry, you know, there's a fine balance because after a while you're like, okay, I'm super confident. I can carry uh, a lot of knowledge in my head and I only need a 16 ounce canteen or a 32 ounce canteen when I'm hiking. Cause I can procure water and, you know, I can find right. it, I can treat it, I can carry it, you know, this and that. Um, but then, like you said, those seasonal things come in where it's like, hey, you might be relying on the gear and the knowledge you have, but then there's also the environmental factor. And, you know, for the one, for same reason why, like when you do map recon and you're checking out an area, you look sure. for the, the largest body of water because chances are in the worst seasons, that's going to be the one that has the most water or has any water. The yeah, other ones point. might be dried up, you know, yeah, um, very good point, but it's, it's a funny balance that we strike because you want to be confident, but you also don't want to be paranoid and you want right. to, you want to be, you want to live somewhere in the middle where it's like, okay, carry what you need. That is going to address what's right. possible. Yeah, you want to be capable. Yeah. Capable. capable is the word. Um, yeah. Base weight is, uh, an important thing to, to, um, I would say very serious minded, backpackers mm -hmm. um and uh, i've never really been one for carrying a lot of weight um i i camped so much with my with my grandfather as a kid and uh, as much as i loved it i hated his style of camping <laughs> he had a list of 81 things he needed to have on the trip for us to have in car camping i'm talking an old, an old wenzel a-frame tent with like two <laughs> Two, three, was, through two, three uh, piece poles. And yes, yep. all these aluminum poles, canvas, and, yep. you know, I'm not one for tents because of all the years of camping, uh, with my grandfather and my cousins and my brother in the tent is just putting away a wet, nasty, heavy tent was the worst part of camp. So, um, to this day, I don't own a tent. I will not, I don't sleep in them. Um, I have, but it was maybe out of my control at some expedition in Venezuela. And that's all you had because there was, there were no trees where we were, but back to gear and weight. Um, I really, really got into peak bagging mm -hmm. and, um, did it on, on, you know, serious level weight, lack of weight. Um, some people have too much weight. Uh, I was at 13,000 feet, um, on my way to the first, first time I made a summit to Mount Whitney and it was a girl, um, very small, very, you know, petite with a pack that was 40 pounds and she's at 13,000 feet. That is a hard, hard lesson. Um, she's having a hard time too. Yeah. She was only about a thousand something feet away from the top. I, I even recommended keeping your pack here, take what you need up to the summit, come back because those kind of trails and uh, national parks, really busy trails, you you really aren't going to be alone. You're not by yourself more than three minutes before somebody comes by. So you probably don't need all 40 pounds just to make that summit and come down. And now I wouldn't have said that if it was just the start of the hike, but um, watching people struggle and getting older, watching them have injuries um, from whatever affects how you, your enjoyment in the woods, I, I think, and outdoors and when it comes to hiking. So hiking and walking, 
always been super important in my life and mm-hmm. to enjoy it more. I wanted to have lightweight and then I wanted to have the skills to not have to depend on the backpack. And um, I have written several articles about pack weight and cutting weight. And, you know, they talk about the big four, you know, your, your sleeping bag, your sleeping system, your shelter. Um, some people will, will say that water filtration, you know, that, that's another one of the big fours. I believe it is. Um, some people have different priorities. I don't know. I carry, and this is uh, of recent, I would say the last time I measured my weight, I was about four pounds base weight for most seasons. Now, I promise I'm always dry. I'm always comfortable and hydrated. Mm-hmm. So everything else after that is, is kind of extra. Uh, when I'm going to, uh, so mostly I'm, I'm, I'm between, you know, four, four and a half pounds. So when I go to you know, trips in the jungle, actually heavier because now you're in a hammock and hammocks by nature are heavy. I mean, I, I've had some very light ones, but still they're kind of heavy. And then you need a larger tarp to cover that area. Mm-hmm. And then ropes or straps. And uh, I get to around five pounds or more if I'm going to the jungle. If I'm going to South America, it's a very different place, jungle, than let's say the Philippines, um, which we should get into talking yeah, about. We, we will. Um, we will. Yeah. Gear, base weight, I keep it low. And uh, I have been doing that since uh, early 2000s. I, I, I hit like 20 pounds. Uh, base weight, just your, you know, your gear, no consumables at about probably in 2007, but I have not been above five pounds at least in the past 15 years. And um, I'm not saying I've been lucky, nothing has happened. I just literally have everything I need. Uh, I use a tarp, I use a bivy, very light quilt that I made, backpackers quilt, um, torso, sleeping bag, your like platypus, and um, iodine, and don't use a pump anymore. So my backpack went al- alone when it's empty is usually five ounces. Cuban and fiber? It's not. I'm I'm using something called Spinnaker. It was, it's like the, not as uh, expensive uh, Cuban fiber. I, I really haven't found a Cuban fiber that. They're very expensive, as you know. Oh my god! Really, um, I, I just haven't found one I like too much uh a guy the east coast ron bell uh, is his name um, mountain laurel great company um they offer quite a few but they're really expensive and i i, I like to modify stuff take straps off and cut uh you heard the term gram weenie that's kind of me like I, i'll cut tags off and everything to me is weight like somebody's like it's, it's so light you know lightweight it's like four ounces I'm like that's four kudos bars or that's you know that's two snickers everything right, to right. me is is, and, and it's because it's, you know, we're going for high altitude, we're going long distance stuff. Um, so, yes, you rely on your gear, but like I said, that didn't sit well with me. And I got really more into the skills. And to this day, I still have friends that if we're backpacking or hiking and, and they lose all their gear, they're pretty sure they'll die that day. And I am too, because <laughs> they never took the time to uh, get any skills besides living out of a backpack. And it's great. I like it. I enjoy it. I really, really um, try to urge people in the backpacking and hiking community to take a basic class and uh, wilderness survival awareness, you know, um, simple, small things. Most backpackers will carry a Swiss Army classic, you know, mm-hmm. the small 
I was just going to bring that up, man. Cause it's a great knife yeah. for backpacking. It really is. And I've done some full on backpacking trips where I didn't cut anything. I didn't cook anything. We went non cook, you know, cheese, crackers, bread, stuff like that. And, uh, you can make life really simple or very complicated on the trail. But again, um, I would say I, I don't do like car camping type of thing. Um, haven't in several years. I will if it's with a group or something, but I'm mostly backpacking or doing overnighters. And there's a lot of schools of thought on that. Tell me yours, but sometimes if I'm going just for a day to cook day camp or even overnight, I'll just take whatever the heck I want because I'm not going that far. I'm going more for the enjoyment. I'm not, I'm not looking for, you know, the next 14,000 peak. Mm-hmm. So I'll load up and take whatever I want these days because it's not going to be too much and it's going to be more fun. And then there's times I'm just like, I'm going to take what's in that little pack and going to be fine with it. I feel like if I don't have it, I don't need it or I can make do. Yeah. There, there's a lot of folks that we encounter here at Fieldcraft who, you know, there, there's ideas of, Hey, I'm going to bug out and I'm going to grab my backpack and go into the mountains. Right. Everyone right. says that like, it's the, the red dawn fantasy, which don't oh, get me course. wrong. It's a fucking <laughs> awesome fantasy. Like I want <laughs> to sure like, like, but I, I want to be able to say, you know, time out or, or call it, you know, when the fantasy's over in my eyes, you know, I don't want to be, you know, Jed and his brother, you know, dying in a playground at the end of the movie. I want to be, <laughs> you know, riding on high, you know, ambushing a convoy in the the Colorado yeah. mountains, you know, that type of thing. Oh, that was a great movie, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think you're spot on with that idea of like e- e- the being a gram weenie. Like if you do have a fantasy of bugging out, what are you carrying and what's your, what's your limit, right? You're saying five pounds for a backpacking trip, which is super, I mean, technically that's a uh, super ultralight, right? Where it's not, it's, it's, it's a level called hyperlight. Hyperlight. Yeah. Yeah. It's, because ultralight's under 10, right? Uh, 10 to 16, 10 to 14, mm-hmm. ultralight, yeah. It used to be 20 pounds was ultralight. And yeah, they, right? Everything kind of shifted. Um, so there are folks out there that are like, yeah, I'm going to go camping. I'm going to grab my tent, my sleeping bag, my my cook kit, my water, my, and of course, I'm going to grab my pistol, 12 mags, 13 extra oh, mags. Of course, right. You yeah. Know? And then <laughs> and I'm going to grab like my my seven knives. I'm going to be loaded like out like Arnold. And it's like, by the end of the day, like when you look at what that total loadout is, it might be 65, 80 pounds, right? Um, yeah. And then you ask someone, it's like, okay, well, pay attention to what you use when you do your backpacking trip. And you know, there's that old idea that when you get back from a backpacking trip, you've got two boxes, right? You throw the stuff that you used in one box and you throw the stuff right. that you didn't use in the other. Well, yes, sir. I kind of agree with that, with the exception of like, you're not always going to use your med kit, but maybe you should have med kit on you all the time, right? Like, right. you know, like I didn't use tweezers for ticks this time, so I don't need it mm-hmm. next time. Well, maybe you do. Um, so yeah, some things you don't want to skimp on. Yeah. So like you no start, lo- you start looking at like, all right, I've got 20 pounds how much of that 20 pounds am I willing to give up for a backpack? How much of that 20 pounds am I willing to give up for a flashlight, a headlamp, a squeeze light, a weapon light, you know, like, right. Yeah. Like after a while you start realizing like, okay, I can skimp here. I can splurge there. Like, where do you find, cause I mean, I know you're doing this, this hyper light thing. Like, and you, and by the way, you and I get along because we were both Swiss army knife nerds. I still carry one every freaking day. Um, yeah. I think we love them. <laughs> and there, and that's a whole other community, right? Like people yeah, will see, is. people will see like he carries a sack. What does he mean? A sack short for Swiss army knife S a K. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, 
Where do you where do you find that you splurge? Because I know that you're constantly posting pictures of like machetes that you've you've grabbed from Indonesia and the Philippines and like where right. do, where do you splurge on like this is gear that you don't want to be without on on weight right like like what's my I mean some people will say like uh, this is my comfort item and it might be like a pillow that weighs you know like a lot or something more I I don't have any lu- I, I wouldn't say I have any luxuries in my in my uh, backpack in my kit and stuff first of all i don't carry anything survival gear related in my backpack i don't think it belongs in there i think it needs to be on you mm-hmm. possible's pouch I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of that a carabiner type of you know kit where everything kind of dangles uh, in your pocket but it's held on a belt loop so i could lose everything else and i'm going to be okay with what i have yeah and what's in, in my head so that is um for me, I guess it would be the Possible's kit, Possible's pouch, which, um, like I said, I don't call that pack weight because that literally is like a shoe or a belt or a pair of pants that you need to be wearing. Mm-hmm. It's just on me like a hat would be. It, it's not going to be in the you know in the pack. I guess you could put a hat in the pack if you need to. But so I'm break, never going to so be like, oh, you know, my fire starting stuff, it's in the pack. No, it's never going to be. It's yeah. maybe some extra tinder. But I'm gonna have on me in my pouch what I what I need, and it's a very a very minimal kit with um, you know, fire starting stuff, uh, cutting tool. Uh, huge advocate, huge advocate of a whistle. To me, I think that is on most trips where I'm either on helping or I'm running the class by myself or I'm with a group of friends. I'm that like annoying guy that's like, does everybody have a whistle? Have a whistle, please have a whistle. How long can you really scream? How far will your voice carry? How long can you blow on that whistle? So to me, that is just super important. You want Again. you want an answer to that one? <laughs> so so <laughs> yeah. another another forum guy. You remember Sergeant Mike? Of course. All yeah. right. So Sergeant Mike, I think it was Sergeant Mike eight eight eight. Right. That was the handle back in the day. Um, <laughs> right. It's funny how All I remember names coming back. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how I remember that, and I can't remember like important stuff like quadratic formulas and things that math teachers will tell you you'll need, but you never do. Um, but uh. Sergeant Mike, back in like 2007, 2008, he's up at the Wilderness Learning Center and we do a whistle test and Mike's got a, a decibel meter and it was a, all these different whistles. So like Fox 40, Micro Fox 40, Acme all Tornado, right, yeah. like standards, whistle, right? All the standards, right? And right, then we, yeah, had a, so. we had a Honda Element. We had Becky, who was like a little nine-year-old girl at the time. And then we had me and it was like, okay, Kev, yell as loud as you can. So the first time I yelled as loud as I could, I was proud because I was actually louder than a Honda Element, um, the nice. horn, the horn, right? The second time it was like five decibels lower, and the third time it was significantly lower. Basically, what happened was as I was yelling, and if anyone wants to try this as listening, go ahead, yell as loud as you can three times in a row, and I'm yeah. talking as loud as you can, like to the point where your chest hurts because you're pushing out so much air. You'll lose yeah. your voice because I lost my voice for about 48 hours. Um, but a whistle, you can't outblow. You don't lose right. your voice because you're, you're blowing basically the, your lungs in a controlled manner through a device and it puts out so much more volume, um, right, decibels. Yeah. So I'll tell you three times and you are not louder than a car horn and yeah. the little, I'm sure you've seen it. You've done it. The, the soda can whistles, uh, that you yeah. pinch together, that yeah. was actually louder, a cheap makeshift whistle that you can find or make wow. off of any beer can <laughs> louder than yeah. me on my third attempt. Um, but 
by far, I think Mike's decibels rating that he was like, this is the standard. It was like 110 or 120. And all the big names that I mentioned before, Acme Tornado, Fox 40, Fox 40 Micro, Storm Whistle, yeah. all of them, even the even that tops little. Uh, oh, yeah. Which the one? flat ones. The flat one. That that sucker that's, was great. That's on me right now. That is always on my, my you know, my key fob, my carabiner kit. Mm-hmm. It's slim. It's not the best. Um, but yeah, that's, that is a really good um, experiment there. And I feel that a lot of survival schools, outfits, have taken classes in different parts of the world, you know, whether it has been jungle survival, desert survival at sea. I feel very, very few schools um, really, really hit home and nail it on signaling. It mm-hmm. is like an afterthought. I hate that. Maybe you have different experience. Mm. I just don't see signaling as it's just not pushed enough. Yeah, there are other skills that maybe are more romantic, right? But signaling is huge to me. If, if well, I used to run the classes for Randall's Adventure Training in California, we did a whole, we did, we did a lot of signaling practice, talking about it, just talking about color, contrast, movement, and which kind of comes into how backpacker mentality is very different than your camper bushcraft guy. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, most of the stuff I wear when I'm backpacking is bright blue. It's not a reoccurring color in nature. Um, not very much. <clears throat> so I'll have some really bright colors on me. That's super important. My bandana will be bright colored. I'm, basically, if I'm lost, I'm helping myself out because I can be seen. Same thing with my tarp. It's either orange or it's yellow. And, you know, a lot of bushcraft community guys, you know, that, that's, that's not cool. That's right, not, right. That's not bushcraft. That's not macho. That's not tactical. Well, when people do come to classes, I try to tell them, for example, let's see, we're hiking. You're all camel up, OD green, whatever. And now you fall down and you hurt yourself. I can't find you. You're not helping yourself out. And you're definitely not helping anybody else out. So colors, again, I, I'm a big advocate of have something colorful on you, something that you'd be ashamed to even show in, in public. could be just a big old yellow or pink bandana or whatever, because that's going to help you more than you know anything else. So I'm big on signaling, and a whistle is just something I, I'm so anal about with people, like have it on you. And here's, let me get your opinion on this. Yeah, man. You've read this, and I'm sure you've maybe even repeated it or said it yourself. Keyless whistles versus a whistle with a P. What mm-hmm. is your opinion on that? So the that P is really to create that shrill sound, right? Like yes. it, it it changes the the pitch and the tempo, <clears throat> right? Like it, it makes that shrill sound. I haven't experimented by pulling a P out of one to see if it's going to to work or not, but I just know ever since I was fifteen and I got certified as a lifeguard, like the Fox Forty surpassed what's referred to as kind of sometimes referred to as like the bobby whistle or the police officer whistle like that little tube that has the yeah. the pee in it right right yeah yeah a little more cylindrical so right. so like my depth of study with whistles is like the multi-chambered whistles like the fox the storm whistle which i've blown scuba diving and swim buddies have been able to hear it you know like i've always thought that right. those have been supreme so you know my i always tell people guys get a five dollar whistle and stop thinking about it you know, but right. what, what were you thinking about with the, the, the P-less whistle or, or the um, P versus the P-less? You know, you always read that cut and paste information about don't use a, you know, a whistle with a P because it'll freeze. Right. Mm. I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Read that. Right. 
peeless whistles are better because it won't freeze. And um, I did this experiment in, it was in California. We're at about 5,000 feet, 6,000 feet elevation. And there was a good amount of snow. And it, it was, we were definitely at about 30 degrees. Um, every possible condition you can think of to make a, what I tried to do was get a whistle with a P in it. Um, a, a referee's whistle, like a sports whistle, those mm. things are insanely loud. I love them. Um, most of the P's you find in whistles, they're some kind of wood or cork. It's yeah. really hard for them to stick and freeze. So I did my best. I got a, I went to the, like a dollar store and got a pack of these colorful plastic whistles, all with a P. Those things are crazy loud. Great. Okay. And I got three different types of whistles with a P left them out overnight and none of them were none of them like not even one was stuck or frozen okay then i got them wet and made sure that they stayed out in the snow i left one there for two days and when you pick it up that pee is still moving around so i don't know whoever got in their head that you need a peeless whistle because the pee will freeze that is just i mean beyond nonsense cut and paste information out there will make people, maybe it's just meant to sell more you know, whistles that don't have a P in them, but mm. any whistle is better than just yelling. I think this, that's the point. Right? Yeah. And you know, that cut and paste information, you know, back in the days of the forums, when guys were, you know, they, they would die on the Hill with certain comments. And I remember I, I showed a, a picture of a winter camping trip I did up in upstate New York at Marty's place. And it was negative, I think it was negative 18 and we're using machetes. And mm -hmm. at one point, you know, Marty, Marty was one of the toughest guys I ever met. And Marty right. had a very good threshold for pain in the, in the winter. And Marty's using machete in this cold temperature. And this guy jumps on and he's like, Oh, you're not, you shouldn't use a full tang knife in the winter because it'll freeze to your hand and a machete will freeze to your hand. And I remember, I remember I was like, Oh, here we go. Let's have some fun. Cause I, cause for a while, like when you're younger, right? yeah. Yeah. When you're younger, you're like, Oh, let's have some fun with these guys. So I was like, I will go camping with you. You can fly out here and we'll go to the freezing cold. We'll go to single digits, sub zero, whatever you want. I will put my hand on that machete and I'll use it. And even if it's freezing, guess what? My body has more mass than that machete and I will warm that steel up and it won't freeze. And the guy was like, but it's happened to me. And I'm like, has it like you know like yeah. it was one of those things right. where no it hasn't yeah you, you feel like billy madison in that movie where it's like well you know that veronica vaughn and it's like no you haven't but i know a guy yeah, and he shakes his head it's like yeah no yeah and then, <laughs> then you just you feel like chris farley telling the guy like yeah yeah great, what a great scene. back on the bus um so, i know from experience <laughs> yeah, no you don't <laughs> so uh yeah no. so let's talk about some of your other experience because one of the other things that when you know, I look at the work that you've done, you've traveled a whole bunch. And I mean, when I yeah. say I travel a lot, I have traveled a lot, but you're traveling in a different way where, I mean, you're traveling as a, as a traveler, you aren't just doing the touristy things. You're capturing these amazing photos, which by the way, I took your advice and I ended up getting one of those Olympus tough cameras. I still have it. Right. Um, I remember you getting it and, um, <laughs> mentioning that it's a great camera. Yeah. Um, but you've been to, I don't know how many countries at this point, a lot of experience overseas in the jungle, yeah. in the Philippines. And you've also trained and, and learned from different survival schools. Like 
it, it's, it yeah. blows me away. Um, the amount of travel you've done. So can you kind of explain how you got that travel bug? I'm assuming it, it started with the backpacking that your grandfather taught you. Um, but how sure. did you get into this travel thing and where have you been? That's like just epic and, and noteworthy. Oh, wow. Um, Wow, that's a whole other podcast. I'm sure we could talk about. Yeah, everywhere well, you yeah, I'll, I'll say this to to all that. Um, yes, I've been to a lot of places. I, I think it's somewhere between um, 65, 70 countries. And I, by the time I was 21, I hadn't even. Uh, I think I've been out of California once or twice <laughs> by the age of 21, um, and then it just changed, and uh, I started to decided to be open to the idea of, so something a lot of people don't don't know about me is that i am a professional musician i rarely say it <laughs> or get into that but that has allowed me to um, use that discipline you know transfers over to anything else you do in life uh, creative wise um, but that allowed me to travel to places i would have never chose to go or paid to go myself so the first thing I would say was playing music gave me a life where I could now see much of the world. And as an outdoor enthusiast, you go to any place you've never been, your eye will gravitate toward that patch of mountains over there. Mm -hmm. Where does that stream go? It just, it just makes you, we're built that way. You know that. So um, going to places I've never been to, um, for the first time was great. And then whenever that tour was done or musical trip I was on, I would then go revisit places that I was curious about. I think it really kind of started, started there. It's the first time I was ever in a real jungle or tropical environment that was very jungle-like was um, somewhere in Mexico where they shot like Predator and parts of Rambo. Um, and that was just, beyond curious about uh, the jungle and uh, that environment has always been attractive to me. I think to a lot of us, what do you think, Kevin? I mean, a lot of people think of like the jungle and tropical places as kind of like the, like that's wild, right? Like that's a wild place. Oh yeah. Especially think, after dark when it comes alive. Um, oh, right. I think of movies like predator and think of like, um, okay, here's a, old movie but it really changed my life um i would say uh it was michael douglas and it was uh romancing the stone right yeah he's in Colombia, yeah. right yeah I'm, I'm my mind instantly went to the crocodile scene where it gets the guy's hand but uh <laughs> but the fact that he's he's there um in Colombia and just got that machete and just just that that looked amazing to me and they were covered with mud and it was, you know, not the most desirable place. And to most people, they, they don't see it that way, but I saw like extreme adventure mm -hmm. in, in that. Um, so yeah, going to a lot of countries has been great. Um, music has allowed me to do that. And I, you know, I, like I said, I like to revisit places and, and go back and find little hidden gems and, and, explore it on my own time in the outdoor sense. And that has been kind of, like I said, I, I could say that's what really got me into um, more traveling is the more you see, the more you realize 
you haven't seen anything. Right. I feel like right. I haven't been anywhere. The more places I go, the more places I find out there are to go. So I never had that feeling of I'm conquering the globe or the map or something. No way. I got a list that just is full of places I, I still want to go to. But if I, I've always been um, kind of adventurous in the way where if I get an idea in my head about going someplace or I see a picture of something, I'm more likely to go there than I would say a lot of people I know. I'll just go there. I'll just do that. And one of those places was, um, ah, I would say, I'm looking at a, uh, I was looking at a picture with a friend of mine, these little green hills, lots of them. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, well, where is that picture? Because I don't, before you even tell me, I'm going to go there. You just tell me where it is. <laughs> and he says, that's where I'm from. That place was Bohol in the Philippines. And my friend Arnie showed that to me. And I said, that's amazing. I was there three months later um, because I was just that curious. And, and I was in the Philippines. And <clears throat> so a lot of times people will invoke something in me, like showing me a picture, telling me a story or something. Tell me more about that. Okay. I'll look into it. That's how I ended up doing a trip in Venezuela. Like a 10, 15 day expedition um, up this big mountain called Mount Rodaima. It's flat top to Pui. And um, it's amazing. You look like it, it looks like you could be in space there. I wouldn't be surprised if an alien or a dinosaur came from around the corner. Um, it was just the most uh, insane place I'd ever seen. And I did that with like 15 or 16 Brazilians. You are in Venezuela. You, you do hike to the border of Brazil and uh, Guyana. It's like a little triangle thing up there. Like, you know, you've reached this point, uh, but you can't go any further because then you'd be entering that country illegal. <laughs> but um, so many places stand out in my head and uh, I couldn't pick one. Uh, you know, I, I love South America and the jungle down there. And that was a, another kind of travel trip that I did on, on like a vacation, you know, um, that was my off time. <laughs> I was working for a band and we were doing a gig Halloween. It kind of ended and I ended up going to the airport and flying to Peru to meet, uh, uh to meet, to meet the, the Randall's adventure and training team. That was the first time I was in Peru. I basically had like a week and a half off of playing music. And that's what I did with my, my vacation. I, you can call it that. I was it Jeff Randall down there or was it Patrick? Uh, no. So at this time, this was the year 2007. Okay. And it, uh, it was uh, Jeff Randall and Mike Perrin mm-hmm. and uh, the other contacts. And it was, it was uh, an amazing trip because, well, it changed my life. I first time I had met uh, Jeff Randall was on that trip. And, you know, he's, you know, co-founder of SC Knives and Randall's Adventure and Training. So I'd been reading him for 10 years. He was in Tactical Knife Magazine. And American Survival an author Guy. for SWAT yeah. Magazine. So it was really weird to be reading somebody for like five to 10 years and now you're on a trip with them. And I was just on the forums, you know, like you said, we're always posting on the forums and stuff. And I'm basically sitting on this eight to nine hour ride <laughs> down the Amazon. And, you know, Jeff said something to me, like I've seen some of your stuff on the forums. You need to be writing for these magazines. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling him, <laughs> but I'm not a writer and I don't know shit about a camera. 
And he just laughed at me. <laughs> he, was, he just laughed at me and said, right. Yeah. You, you need to be doing this. I'm telling you, there are more people writing for those magazines that do it from their backyard or sitting on a couch. And I can already tell that that's not you. Yeah. It's not me. So that's kind of how I got into the writing stuff. And, um, not too long after that trip, I, uh, well, I love the trip in the jungle. First of all, um, it was everything I wanted it to be. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of suffering. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, um, for me, that it was so much happened on that trip that I find myself telling people these days um, things you learn. You know, like I know you had an amazing mentor, mm-hmm. Marty. Yeah. And I know your relationship, how strong that was and what an influence, you know, he was on you kind of, let's say, really made you do what you're doing, you know, now full time. Right. I've always admired that about you. And that's, that's pretty cool. So in the same sense, um, Jeff Randall had kind of encouraged me and pushed me to, to do the writing thing and photography thing. And I had no interest in it. I did no you know, interest. I, I didn't really have any skill or ability that I knew of. I just like going places and telling people about it. <laughs> and sometimes that's all it takes. If you're excited or passionate about something. People will, pick up on that and then you know it, it maybe have a voice or, or something how many people but, do you think are out there and they want to take that leap but because they're weak and i'm just going to say weak because maybe calling them out for being weak will get them to actually do it how many people do you think are like man i wish i could do this it's like yes you can you might not succeed but at least you tried you know and uh, as opposed to sitting back when you're you know 75 80 years old being like man when i was in my 20s or 30s i could have it's like Imagine being 75, 80 years old. You got a bunch of little grandkids, great grandkids, whatever it is, running around and be like, you know, I did this awesome thing. I went with Jeff Randall on a trip to the Amazon, you know, and, and I, and I, and I had a couple articles and because of that article it led to this and like, sure, like I, I don't see any harm or any shame in trying and not being successful right. with something that is a passion. I see shame in that you have something that you say that you love but you don't act on that love. You don't take a chance for that love. Right. You know what I mean? Too like, many people. Too many people do that, you know? And right. I hear about it all the time in places like I'll be in a pub someplace and uh, somebody will ask me, you know, question or you know, um, in classes, this happens often, um, you know, classes that I'll be around or visiting or hanging out. And people will ask me a question like, how do I get into that? Yeah, you know, and often I will get emails to this day on Instagram. I will get emails. I will get messages from people asking how do they get into the outdoor business, writing and traveling, doing all that stuff. That's not a simple answer. You know that, right? (laughs) There's no magic bullet. There's no button. Uh, So many weird things have to line up, and (laughs) for that to happen. But uh, you are right. Too many people, I would say, die with all this music in them or adventure because mm-hmm. they never they never like they never really saw themselves doing like they wanted to like you said but they never took that step and it's not more it's more of a leap it's you know it's kind of like a it's it, it, it's a lifetime commitment i would say to do something you really want to do on a consistent basis and to do it well it's there's no there's no magic bullet on that right yeah and we're, and we're knocking at the door right now this topic so we might as well walk in years ago, this is probably 2000, 
2017, 2018, I wrote an article on, so you want to be a survival writer. And right. my advice in that article was, you know, the first thing you need to do is you need to, you need to start writing and it doesn't have to be about survival, like write for your local newspaper where sure. they will accept an editorial and they'll publish it and, and print that thing out, you know, and you can opine about whatever you want. You could say, Hey, this local food place is fantastic. They did this. I walked in there. You, you write about the experience. And when you do that, you now have something that is in print that you can scan and you can send it to magazines and say, here's my writing style. And maybe the right. first magazine you write for is something like uh, wilderness way where they don't pay you, but now you're in a national magazine. And, right, that's something. And yeah, and you've got to you've got to be willing to cut your teeth with some of the early free stuff that you're not getting paid for. In fact, you might actually spend money doing, but eventually you will get that first paid magazine article and you're like, "Wow, this is real." And then eventually right. it goes into, "All right, I'm getting paid magazine articles. Uh, I'm reaching 30,000 readers. Now I'm writing for a magazine that has 100,000 readers and, you know, I think at the pinnacle recoil magazine which i think we both write for um i think, don't oh you haven't been in recoil yet oh well, we gotta get you we need recoil. to get to that yeah <laughs> i'll get you i'll get you there so uh so i think recoil had like three quarters of a million readers both online oh, wow. yeah. and print. like it's massive um but the other thing is the photography side which you tell jeff randall hey i don't know how to use a camera well you start looking at photos that right. really, you know, speak to you. And you say, how did sure. they do that photo? Let me recreate that photo. And eventually you start learning like, okay, flat photos suck. Three quarter angles are better. Uh, this photo has depth. This photo doesn't have uh, bright spots or shadows. Sure. Like right. you start yeah. noticing all these little nuances. And then here's another Those little one. things are the biggest often. Do you, did you ever work with Garrett, Garrett Lucas? Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah, Garrett was probably my harshest photo critic, um, but he taught me so much about photography because he was a great photographer. And I was trying to take photos of a pistol one time, and he's like, "Nope, too light. Nope, too dark. Nope." Uh, you know, that's probably the best thing that ever happened to you. Him saying that because uh, yeah, it helps, right? Yeah. So, so that's my advice. I say start free, build up a resume, and then shoot your shot, man. Right, like. People say like, how do you, how do you date the pretty girl? Well, you got to ask her out first and chances are you're probably going to get rejected. Um, so, right. so what would be your advice for someone who wants to do what you're doing? Like, how do they maybe not necessarily become you, but how do they, they follow in some of your footsteps? Yeah. It's interesting what you said about how people, you know, are, don't want to take these steps or you were talking about some of the steps they could or should take. It was very different for me because I liked adventure. I was a professional drummer and I loved backpacking and I didn't know, like, honestly, I didn't know anything about a camera. I had no desire to write. Um, Jeff saw that in me. So as opposed, instead of me trying to ask him, how can I do this thing? He was trying to tell me how, why I should be doing that. Um, and it was kind of the opposite where I was kind of more going away from it. And he gave me like an editor's, um, contact his name was Stephen Dick huge you know writer mm -hmm. um, you know contributor to the outdoor industry and I consider him a friend uh, saw him not too long ago played show but um, we did this jungle trip and Jeff was photographing things right there for things that I saw in a magazine about three or four months later and I thought well that's kind of cool that I was on there but I had noticed like I didn't want to I, I never wanted to 
I'd struggled to this day to call myself a photographer. It just didn't sit well with me. I feel like, because I didn't really, really study it, study it, and, and, and go through all these hoops um, and, and all these challenges to, to be a writer or a photographer, I almost feel it's less real. Maybe that sounds weird, but um, I'm sure you've had people. I've had a lot of people who are straight out of school, journalists, writers, and they want to have the conversation or take me to lunch and pick my brain about this. And I, I don't have, I don't have the answers, uh, honestly, the typical answers to them because I didn't go in a typical way. I basically was, you know, kind of like helped out, grandfathered in, like um, to these editors, right? Because I had a huge endorsement from a well-known writer and uh, photographer. That helps, right? <laughs> but at the yeah. same time, you know, at, you get to a point where that's only going to get you here to this point maybe foot in the door if you want to say that you still have to deliver and be credible to these editors with your photos if you have to be a double triple threat you have to be uh you know you have to have passion for it and you have to be able to convey the information but then you got to have photo skills mm -hmm. so it's like it's a lot of, it, it's a lot of different things and sometimes i've heard other writers say I, I, they think maybe editors will never really understand what it is we do or the place you put yourself in. Um, and people will ask me and my answer is often, what's, what do you want to do? What's your background? What would you want to write about? And I, I think um, it's important to write all the time, every day. It's whether you're getting paid or, or not um, to, first of all, be professional about it you know, take it upon yourself to get your skills and things like this together. I, I didn't know these things. I didn't have a desire to do these things. So they came to me in a very different way. So it's harder for me to give people advice. I guess I could now, but you know, photography is, uh, it's a, a big thing for me and I love it. I'm, and uh, it's kind of like gear in a way where simple is better. We're talking about that Red Olympus camera that, uh, that I was telling you about mm -hmm. that I use that I, you end up using. Um, it's amazing. I've been on some trips where if I've never been to a country or a place before, I take the big DSLR with all the lenses and the crazy, that's a lot of heavy stuff. It's also expensive I, as hell. It is. <laughs> and then I also take that little field camera. Now I'm doing an article or a story. I was in the Philippines doing the thing for Robert Young Pelton's um, knife. And when the article came out, the lead photo, the two page, you open it up. This is for American survival guide um, was of was the picture I took with the small little red camera. Mm -hmm. I call it the little point and shoot the red camera. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it makes me like wonder, like, wow, they, they chose that field photo as the main um, photo. And it, it, to this day, it, it, it'll baffle me. I still, I feel I, I love photography. I had to learn it though, even though it seemed like I was already, I knew what I was doing. I, I really didn't. Um, I first, my first magazine thing, or I would say photographer credit was in SWAT magazine. It was like, you know, photography by Ruben Bollier. And yeah. like, I used a point and shoot Canon camera uh, for the RC4. It was one of SEs before they were SE9s. Um, but the only one they had at the time, they sent to me. And Jeff said, I'm, I think I'm going to need that knife back from you because uh, Jerry Van Cook is writing it up for SWAT and you have the only one. He sent you like zero, 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 zero. Um, he said, so can you just, just do the shots for the magazine? I said, absolutely. Without, a, you know, nobody wants to hear anybody humble at that time. Mm -hmm. It's yes or no. 
you don't say, well, I'm not that good. I don't, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. You just do it. You just make it happen. You do your best. You take 200 pictures, but you don't send them more than five or seven for that. It was a column. So like you have to force yourself to become what you want to be, even if you don't think you're ready for it. Maybe that was kind of, kind of weird, but I was kind of thrown into it in a way. And then I, I, after I was in the magazine for probably three or four different times, different occasions, I went backwards as I do many things in life and had to learn photography. And why is this good? People would say, that's a great shot. And I would say, why can you teach me why it is? And I had a lot of friends um, that were photographers that were very good. And Jeff was one of them. So it helps to have these conversations with somebody and people are afraid of, of, of very straight information, feedback. They, you know, they expect you to candy coat it. I think the best advice anybody could, could, could take, uh, if they can take it is honest feedback, honest advice, let somebody be brutally honest yep. with you. Like you said, Garrett, um, you, you needed that probably to, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it nudges people. I, fi I, I find myself doing that to people these days. And I, you know, if you're listening, you know who you are. Um, I'm really brutal with people in photos these days. Like, and dude, get your toes out of the photo. <laughs> what the hell? You know, my big thing is, <laughs> is, is space. You, you give, uh, you give most waiters or the average person, a camera or a phone, they take this huge step back and they capture nothing but chaos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And like you know, the subject, so so many things in photography um, you, you learn over the years, and you learn by, by traveling. And I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of, of travel photography, as and you know gear, you know shots, uh, product shots. They are two different worlds. They are like learning two different instruments, like yep. two different styles of music. There are so many different rules, and so I found myself as a published photographer and writer, learning photography, all these books around me from Scott Kelby. And, you know, one of the best ways to learn good photography is just to, to look at it, really. If you're in a dentist's office or a doctor's office, all those travel magazines, food magazines, every photo in there has a lot going on. And just absorbing it and being able to speak that language and understand so little has to do with skill, I feel. Um, I do everything backwards, but I read this and I, I feel this about photography. Beginners worry about gear, right? Now take it a uh, next level up, journeymen, they worry about techniques. And um, I would say the third level is that masters only think of one thing, that's light. Lighting is everything. Yeah, three-point lighting minimum. You know, um, I mean, lighting in general, as far as, wow, so many things um, I, I know. when it comes so, to, so what we can do, I, I think that is, that is the hardest thing to get people to put their finger on it and to crack is, and, and that doesn't mean flash. That doesn't mean full in the sun exposed. Even that means a lot of things, you know, what, what brings its best characteristics out? Um, what are the, you know, the, what do you want to highlight about this? What's amazing about this photo? So I just really, really had the the best training um, subjects in life. I, I I had amazing things like the Eiffel Tower, you know, temples in Russia, old wooden churches in Norway. I had the most amazing subjects to practice on. So that the, again, the travel stuff really um, helped that photography skill. 
um, when you have amazing subjects, it, it kind of brings something out of you. It's, it's a lot easier to get better at something when you're surrounded by it. What, you know, more than if you just want to take pictures of like your dog or something in the backyard. So yeah. And especially when you, when you owe it to that subject to portray it in the best, well, no pun intended in the best light. Um, right. You know, I think from a photography perspective, like some of the early mistakes that people make, you mentioned space, right? Too little or too much headspace, you know, uh, right. not properly yeah, framing, not properly framing a photo where it's like, okay, understand the rule of threes or the rule of thirds, you know, and you want to yeah. be that center third, um, right. because that's where our eyes are drawn to. And then I think about other like photographic tips that I've picked up over the years when you can use a freaking tripod and oh, use, man. and put your camera on a timer because he, right. like your camera is a precision instrument and we screw it up with movement. And if you don't think that clarity uh, changes when you put it on a tripod from handheld, like your camera will pick up the subtle like click of the, the shutter and that movement. So, um, you know, I, I think like use a tripod, understand the lighting. Um, another one with, with, with cameras, like I said before, is with the perspective, you know, and then make sure that you don't have a distracting background, understand foreground sure. and background. Um, yeah. Everything I mean, you just said. And, and then, yeah. oh, and then F stops, like, uh, understand, like if we're talking about the old school DSLRs, right? Like understand sure, F stops, right. exposure times, white balance. Like there are free college courses that you can take or relatively inexpensive courses you can take at your community college that will automatically make you a better photographer. Um, right. yeah. The videos too. Now. Yeah. There's so yeah. many more resources than back then. Um, um, I remember the you, first you time you really hit a lot of good points there. Yeah, distracting yeah. elements <laughs> and people are afraid to push in and crop and just get in tight. I love detail to me. That's um, shooting a piece of something like um, I would say the Sydney opera house is sometimes more powerful than shooting the whole opera house. Cause you know what it is. It's kind mm -hmm. of iconic. Um, it was at this amazing temple in Spain. And if you want the whole thing in the frame, you're going to get delivery trucks, telephone poles, people selling newspapers and tour buses. So what do you do? You, you don't take that shot. Nobody wants to see that shot. I promise you that you find the detail. You, you a piece of something often suggests the whole and capturing too much. You really just, the more you capture in a picture, the more chaos, unless you're going for chaos, uh, sunsets and, and, and things people, uh, I see people, uh, they always want to get everything dead center. And I feel like dead center for subjects is pretty much where amateurs live. However, there are so many amazing photos where if you put that subject dead center, like in a jail setting or a crowd, that you can create so many things like the feeling of loneliness surrounded by all these bars or these people by putting something dead center with all this space around them, kind of like mm -hmm. a drowning feeling. And it's amazing that the language, right, kind of sounds weird, but I think photographers uh, do get it. Um, yeah. Basic stuff, basics always come back to there's There's nothing more important than the basics uh, when it comes to so many things. Photography, when it comes to wilderness survival, basics, right? How many people do you know, have you ever met that have been lost for one hour or one month, ever come out with the most amazing fish trap basket that they were weaving? 
Nobody does that. Basics. <laughs> you know, talking round 15, jab cross, you're throwing basics. You're not, you know, trying to baffle people with, uh, with, with too much. Yeah, there, there's so, more of a durability and a perseverance of basics. Like, you know, you can you can do the basics longer, I want to argue, than you can do something very complicated. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, Check, like I can, I can you scrape a ferro rod. describe technique. And, you, yeah. know, you can do something over a longer period with, uh, you know, with minimal, I would say, uh, disrupt to yourself or, or anything. Mm -hmm. Like, like I was just about to say, like I can use, I can show a person how to use a ferro rod and a Bic lighter and stormproof matches as your three basics. And you can do that pretty much under any condition with minimal muscular input. But when I start demonstrating like, okay, here's the, uh, flint and steel technique, and then you have to go gather this and you have to go gather that. And then here is, uh, you know, the bow drill. And then here is, um, you know, using a, a magnifying lens and this and that, like, the, the more complicated, the more nuanced techniques that require either more input or more bandwidth, you know, those are right. the ones that you're not going to have as much, much success with. But like you said, jab cross, right? Like, uh, right. The, the fundamentals, if you're strong as a fundamental player, you can get by because your fundamentals are so good. Like Michael Jordan never stopped practicing doing layups or never stopped practicing shooting free throws, you know, all the fancy stuff. Yeah. He was really freaking good at that, but yeah. The fundamentals, I mean, basics always come back to you in life. Like yeah. you're playing marbles, tennis, whatever. Yeah. It just, man, they, I think they don't hit that home enough. Um, Some, something everybody wants to jump in, you know, too fast, too quick. Uh, as a musician, I, I can relate it to mm. that where a lot of people want to jump in at a certain tempo, speed, space in between musical notes. And that's really hard. Everything done fast, whether it has to do with making a shelter, making a fire, or creating an amazing photo, everything done at a normal speed or fast must be done slow, like baby speed, slow, get that muscle memory. And I think that applies to everything, sports, anything we do that we're good at. Just people don't give themselves enough time to really absorb it, take it in and, and then, you know, <laughs> bring it up to speed. And yeah. That's how people will get frustrated, you know, trying to, to do something. I'm going to be uh, jumping on another call shortly, but I want to, before we get off, I want to talk about one thing that I've hinted at over the years. And I've, I recently talked to, you know, Glover about, and that's the idea of me actually going to the Philippines to try yes, to find sir. the cave that my dad lived in, you know, from December of 41 until uh, roughly August of, of 45. And I'm, I've recently podcasted my dad and I got some more details on it where he said it wasn't necessarily the family's property, but it was the the other close friend of the family, their property. So now I've got it narrowed down to their plot of land. Wow. And now I just need to find local guides and all that. But you've been to the Philippines. You understand the jungle over there. So let's kind of end on this note. What is to be expected? Like, let's say, hey, Ruben, I'm, I'm hiring you, man. You're coming with Fieldcraft. You're coming with me to the jungle. Uh, right. You know, we're going to look for this cave what would be your strategy to locate it? If you know that it is in a ravine, high cliffs on both sides on a, on this other family's property, like what would be your first step action steps to make that a successful expedition to find this cave? Wow. That's a, that'd be a great trip. First hell yeah, of all, hell yeah, um, man, it, it, that needs to be, that needs to be a, a funded documentary. 
I was going to say, you're, you're looking at a book, you're looking at a, yeah, a documentary. There's so many ways you can go about that and, and to share it with people and make it like a, a great thing. Um, those years that you mentioned in the Philippines, those were terrible times to be in the Philippines. Um, I've heard a lot firsthand from people and spent time in Palawan where it was just a really bad time to be <laughs> during, during, you know, that war and the Japanese and, you know, done what they did there in the Philippines. They didn't leave any friends. Um, getting there, being the, do you have any idea what island it is, first of all? Uh, Luzon. Luzon, okay. Which is biggest part, uh, east coast, west coast? Uh, it was in the Bicol region. So, Bicol. Yeah. Okay, so Bicol is the middle. So Luzon is the big top. So Bicol is the middle of the Philippines. Uh, that's where they have a big volcano right now. That's, that's spewing, right? Um, that's in Legaspi, Bicol. So that's like the Visayas region, um, very close to that. So your best bet is all, you're always going to want to go with locals, local trackers, farmers, people that know the area, know the area, how it's been for years, reliable people that you can depend on. Weather is always going to be a thing. I don't think you get too much humidity there, too much more humidity there than you do in the south you know, in, in the south of the, of the u.s it gets very humid very buggy what you can expect is um very warm people that will will be very helpful i would say as much information as you could you could possibly convey to somebody there a local guide and you'd be surprised how many people have the experience it's usually farmers um that will will know an area, a better way to get there, faster way, safer way. Um, I had guides when I was in Mindanao, very south of the Philippines, and that's a place where you and I, you can pass, <laughs> but this place like where we I shouldn't be, or they, they say not to go uh, because of, of the kidnapping, the Abu Sayyaf. Um, while I was there, we had so many local guides and farmers that could get you to old watering holes, old waterfalls. So I'm taking that knowledge and thinking that would be something you would want to do is you need somebody who is older, knows the area, the, the landscape, the conditions, the kind of places people would hide out and you'd have to go from there. And I, I guarantee you, you're going to have the, the adventure of a lifetime. Um, if you really do follow through with this, I could definitely put you in touch with people. I, I didn't spend as much time in Bicol, um, only three or four days of taking photos of the Mayan volcano that's erupting right now uh, as a must-see um, thing. Not the eruption, but that volcano. Mm -hmm. That area is just, it's its not big city. We have a lot of good people, honest folks there that uh, have a lot of knowledge and Locals are always going to be your best bet for guides and information and safety. So that would be something you'd have to look into there. And, you know, it wouldn't be bad to, to get in contact with people beforehand, if possible. Yeah. Reaching out via email. Um, because almost every place like that has some kind of program where there are local guys, there are local, you know, indigenous people like the Itis. Um, in Luzon, they do have like a jungle survival training program. And again, it's, 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 
It's natives. It's an old school way of doing things. They have the insight and the knowledge, not as much as the younger generation. I think that applies to most places though. Yeah, spot on there. You know, I know my dad was like, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's still a dangerous location. Um, you know, he said that there's still people that are living the old way where yeah. they don't want modern uh, luxuries. They don't want running water. They want the old school way. And, you know, I saw one of my cousins who was over there recently and my dad described a way of making a, a camp kitchen where it was like an elevated bed uh, like a, like a garden bed, but in the center of that garden bed are three rocks. And then you put a walk on top of it. Right. And right. my cousin who's over there right now, my first cousin, what are they cooking on that? You know what I mean? So right. it's, it's amazing that there are parts of this world where people they're rejecting microwaves, they're rejecting uh, refrigerators <laughs> yeah. and, and all that. And you know what? They're kind of happy. Like they're very right. happy living that way. Um, yeah, yeah. The system all went down and everything went to hell. Somebody would have to go and tell them because they wouldn't have any idea and they wouldn't affect them either way. Yeah. So in, in a really funny way, they're kind of uh, more at peace, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, man, we uh, this isn't the last. I think the, this audience, the Fieldcraft audience is going to hear from you because at some point I want to get you down here to the Carolinas, teach a class, you know, the Reuben way have you come in as a guest instructor or something like that but then and i'd be absolutely honored i think it'd be blessed oh my and, god uh, you have so much knowledge to to share um and on top of that like we'll probably end up doing a part two of this because there are going to be questions that are going to come in where people are like you should ask him about this and it's like dude he's a friend <laughs> like man, there's no reason I'm why we can't it. do a part two so um anytime before anytime. i'm absolutely honored before we go, where can people uh, go to follow your work? Where can they go to, to train with you, do all that great stuff? Well, um, I would say the best way, most universal way um, is just to go on Instagram, look at my name and find me. I, yeah, I try to answer as many you know, messages as I can, but I guess that's the, the more universal way that rather than giving you know an email out or something. Um, yeah, go to Instagram and uh, send me a message or adventure food guy, but just my name, you know, Ruben Bulgear. And that's, uh, you know, feel free to post it up or whatever, um, uh, you know, challenge anybody to try to say their last name correctly. Hasn't been done. <laughs> it really is. Awesome. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for, for joining us. Stay on. Uh, we'll, we'll chat a little bit more. But uh, guys, for you listening, thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast.